Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. I'm here today with Susan Walker, my co-host and colleague at Penn Institute for Urban Research. And this is our weekly special briefing brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. Thank you very much for dialing in uh, today and in previous sessions. We have a really, really interesting panel for you today. We're going to dig into the meat of the HEROES Act, the the $3 billion legislation that was passed the House, and what may come next in negotiations with the Senate and the White House with our all-star panel, uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, Democrat from the 3rd District of Oregon and member of the House Ways and Means Committee, and Bill Galston, of the Brookings Institution and a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Both are intimately connected and uh, and plugged into the legislative process that's going on right now. Uh, states and cities have hundreds of billions of dollars of deficits that they're piling up. It's, it's growing so fast, it's, it's getting too hard to count the estimates, but it's in the high hundreds of billions for, for sure. We're going to discuss how these deficits will be dealt with in terms of federal aid. Let me introduce Susan Wachter, co-director of the Penn Institute of Urban Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Susan, take it away. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be uh, on this call today and to be co-hosting this series. Our speakers are extraordinary. And we are starting with our first speaker, who I believe we're starting with the congressman, or are we starting with Bill Galston? We're starting with Congressman Blumenauer. Go ahead then, please introduce Congressman. Well, thank you. Uh, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to join with you this morning. Uh, the Volcker Institute, I'm thinking Paul Volcker would have uh, added an important dimension. And of course, I think the reason I'm on this call this morning is that his former office mate and uh, my mentor and sort of the the grand old man of infrastructure, uh, Dick Ravitch, we could use that steady hand. I think from my perspective, we're dealing with a reality that is much worse than we thought and is probably worse than we think. The lessons from the Great Recession and more recently uh, comments by Jerome Powell is that we need to do more and it needs to be bigger. I mean, think for a moment about what has happened in the course of a few weeks. We have reached depression era rates of unemployment. And unlike the Great Depression, which took about three years to build, this happened in a little over three weeks. It's also playing out in the midst of a pandemic. And back in the Great Depression, We were 10 years away from the Spanish flu pandemic that uh, swept the country and and indeed the world. Uh, During the Great Depression, we had Franklin Roosevelt in the White House, a man of vision, uh, of an ability to bring people together uh, and think big thoughts. We have 
Huey Long in the White House without his uh, endearing uh, human uh, humanizing characteristics. Uh, we are in, uh, I think, a, a desperate situation that is going to require uh, bigger and bolder. And I think conventional wisdom is going to be tested and found wanting on an ongoing basis. The opening bid that you've seen, uh, or bids, I would call them, to move through Congress, and most recently the HEROES Act that uh, passed the House of Representatives, I think might play out a little different than pundits think. There is an expectation of some form of grand bargain, and we'll talk a little bit about that today, but I think we need to look at some of those things skeptically. One of the element of the grand bargain talks about limiting some of the liability. And I just look at what has happened, for example, with OSHA and the trust with this administration and worker protection in exchange for protections for employers. And I think about what is uh, symbolized by Donald Trump employing the Work Production Act, ordering slaughterhouse workers back to work without protective equipment and without clear guidelines. These things are going to invite skepticism, and I think they're going to be hard for us to work through. And candidly, I think the pain is only going to increase. I think there's going to be some realization, for example, on some of my friends who are Republican senators, uh, even those not up for re-election. Mitch McConnell's opening bid of suggesting that we just let state and local governments, uh, school districts go bankrupt, not only unconstitutional, uh, but horrifically poor politics and poor economics, adding more to the unemployment ranks. I would suggest that there are a couple of examples of the type of thing that I think could get bipartisan support and broad public support and are desperately needed. I've been working with the Independent Restaurant Coalition, for instance. We're talking about 11 million jobs and 500,000 independent restaurants in every community across the country that play such a critical role, not just in terms of the economics, but in terms of the social fabric, uh, the character of the community. And I say that not just because I'm from Portland, Oregon, where food plays such a critical role. It's a, it matters in every community across the country. We lost this last month four and a half million employees in the restaurant industry. I mean, that's half of the job loss uh, in terms of that in, entire industry, and it's, it's going to go up. We are facing the loss of 80% of independent restaurants uh, unless we take some action to help stabilize them, something that is tailored to their needs, something that the Paycheck Protection Program simply was not designed to take care of. And I think there's an opportunity for some broad bipartisan recognition that we don't want to lose 80% of these restaurants, many of them permanently this year, add to the job loss and weaken the character of our communities. 
The other area where I think there's an opportunity for major bipartisan initiatives and progress deals with infrastructure. I've been working on this for years, not, not just with Dick Ravage. Uh, we have not raised a gas tax in 27 years at the federal level, uh, even though 35 states have figured out a way to do that on a bipartisan basis. The gas tax has lost more than 50% of its purchasing power because of the federal paralysis. I do think that there's growing recognition that here is an opportunity for us to invest a trillion or more in infrastructure spending across every community in the country that will strengthen those communities, put hundreds of thousands of people uh, to work at family wage jobs and not require adding to the deficit. With gasoline prices at amazingly at low prices, low plunging oil prices, and even before this, we had an unprecedented coalition supporting it with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, with the AFL-CIO, the American Trucking Association, virtually every major business, labor, environmental, and governmental element. And it's just been weak need behaviors on the part of Congress and resistance, frankly, from administrations, Republican and Democrat alike. I think this is a new reality, and I think there's going to be increasing pressure to be able to invest in restoring the economy in ways that don't involve uh, printing more money. And this is something where there is a broad public support, where it's happened at the state level, and it's just a matter of political will. I think we're going to be able to enter into a, an era where the pressures are such. I, I think if we're still in free fall later in the summer or the fall, I think Donald Trump, who has in the past suggested he wants to spend a trillion or even $2 trillion, and even on a couple of occasions hinted that he'd support the gas tax. This is something that could come forward. We're going to have to be dealing more boldly and more broadly, uh, because I think we're going to be in a desperate situation for the rest of this year uh, and beyond probably for the next 30 months. And these are some initiatives that I think could find support and would make a huge difference. Well, thank you. That's very helpful, Congressman. And we're turning now to Bill Galston, who is a Brookings Institution and also a must-read editorialist at the Wall Street Journal. Bill, you have been covering in the last two columns recently where we are on the legislative front for state and local support. Can you summarize where we are for us? Oh. Thank you very much, Susan, and thanks for inviting me to participate in this very, very timely forum. In my judgment, and I'm not sure whether Congressman Blumenauer agrees with me or not, one of the items most likely to be included in any compromise package of assistance to various sectors in various segments of the country will be aid to states and localities. That is true for many reasons. One of them is that state and local governments are a very important part of our overall economy and workforce. And as we learned 
in the painfully slow recovery from the Great Recession, if states and localities are slashing their payrolls and cutting their budgets while you're trying to to accelerate an economic recovery, then what is happening at the state and local level will be a drag recovery. It's the equivalent of having a foot, one foot on the gas pedal and the other on the brake. That makes no sense whatsoever. And secondly, states and localities are mainly in the business of delivering essential services to citizens. If you look at the history of our system of federalism, and if you look at the constitutional law on the subject, it's absolutely clear. States and localities are supposed to take the lead in service delivery having to do with the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens, and they do. I was just in a one-hour conversation yesterday uh, with the head of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, who laid out some very troubling statistics as to what would happen to fire departments unless states and localities uh, get some help and get it fast. So if state and local aid is likely to be among the core elements of a, of a package, what is that going to look like? And a couple of months ago, we would have had to speculate on what that, about what that would look like. Now I think we have a much better idea. Why is that? Because to state the obvious, with the House in Democratic hands and the Senate in Republican hands, it's going to take an agreement across party lines and between the chambers in order to make something happen. Uh, a group that I've been associated with for about the past 10 years called No Labels is, has been working very hard to facilitate useful and productive conversations across party lines among elected officials. Uh, about five years ago, they started something called the Problem Solvers, a caucus in the House of Representatives, which is now independent. Uh, it includes 25 Republicans and 25 Democrats meeting regularly, agreeing on policy proposals and pushing to get them enacted. More recently, that process has expanded uh, into, into weekly bicameral meetings involving uh, Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate. And a core topic for those bi bicameral bipartisan discussions over the past three months has been aid to states and localities. And earlier this week, identical bills were introduced in the Senate and the House on the subject of state and local aid. Let me give you a flavor for it. Uh, the top line number is $500 billion. A third of that would be distributed through a population-based formula. A third of it would be distributed based on COVID-19 infection rates. And a third of it would be distributed based on revenue losses that states are able to verify. Of that total of 500 billion, one third would be reserved for direct aid uh, to municipalities and to, and to counties, and 16 billion would be available for tribal governments. 
which are experiencing grave problems of, of their own. And the bill made it absolutely clear that this money could not be deposited in state pension funds, which has become, that issue has become a major flashpoint uh, with Illinois as one of the centerpieces of, of the controversy. I think there's, there's reason to believe that something in the ballpark of the bill that I, I've just outlined is going to be the sweet spot for the House and the Senate to come together. I think it would be interesting in the discussion to come to compare the bill I've just outlined to what is contained in the bill that the House recently passed, the so-called Heroes Act, to get a flavor of what of how the debate is is likely to go. Uh, and with that, as they say in Congress, I will yield back. Well, thank you, Bill. I just want to remind everybody that you're listening to Special Briefing, which is co-sponsored by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. You can find the archived version of today's program, as well as all of our other previous uh, programs going back more than a month at the Volcker Alliance website or the Penn IUR website. We encourage you to come and visit uh, and also stick around the websites and read some amazing, uh, amazing stuff on public service, on urbanism and on state budget practices. We've got some really terrific questions from the audience I mentioned before, uh, ranging from a uh, big picture to very, very specific. Susan, why don't you take that and sort them out and ask our panelists. We're going to have an open mic for, uh, for the entire panel now. Thank you, Bill. First, so I will go to some general questions on federal aid and what happens if further funding is rejected. Sheila Weinberg, CEO of Truth and Accounting, asks, should the federal government be giving aid to the state and local governments during crises? Or should the governments have enough reserves to weather the storms? Personal finance experts advise a person to have three to six months of income set aside. What do you think about this, Congressman and Bill Galston? Who wants to step in? Well, uh, there are lots of theoretical things that should happen for governments and for individuals. We just found that the theoretical requirements uh, for individuals to be able to meet their financial uh, exigencies uh, don't pencil out. Uh, there are uh, most, uh, not most, but uh, nearly half American families uh, are in a situation where they can barely meet the needs now going forward. Uh, and the notion that somehow uh, all the state governments with their uh, uh, conflicting political needs, uh, with shifting sands of federal support, uh, that somehow they're going to have sufficient reserves is a fantasy. I mean, I'm in a state that has fought very hard to build up reserves and they have, and it's hard fought. But those reserves are going to disappear in a matter of two or three months. And the pain that uh, Bill referenced in terms of what he described with the firefighters. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and it is, uh, I, I think there should be uh, more responsible budgeting. And I've watched over the years, I mean, in, in New Jersey, where some of you are located, watched 
uh, the sleight of hand for Republican and Democratic legislators year after year after year, creating a problem there. By all means, maybe as we go forward with this, we can have some guide rails that make sense in the future. Right now, we've got to stop the bleeding. Right now, we have state and local governments, public safety, education that are on the brink, and I sincerely believe they are teetering in ways that people don't fully understand. The notion that we're going to talk about moral hazard and talk about reforms and in an ideal world is no more realistic right now in the short term for dealing with state and local governments than to uh, withhold federal assistance because those families should have planned for better times. And we just came off a strong economy and they should all be in better shape. Well, Holcomb, uh, that's not realistic. Not everybody shared in that prosperity and there are real challenges. And I just, I think that defies reality. That's a great long-term objective. I'd like to get in that spot. But uh, I think we're in a desperate shape over the next 30 months, and we're going to have to get all the ammunition we can so that we don't have a recession that gets even worse and takes longer to recover and is going to cost us more in the long run in terms of economic damage and loss of revenue. Thank you, Congressman. Let me address this to Bill Belston. If This is a question from Daniel Green, who is a professor at Harvard Business School. If federal aid does not materialize, is there any possibility that we will see states substantially relax their own balanced budget requirements? Uh, Bill, perhaps you can pair this with the previous one on should the federal government be giving aid to state and local governments or should they be should they have enough reserves? They go in a sort of opposite direction. Yeah, 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 I'll be happy to take both of those. I think to understand where we are now, you have to go back to the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010. The states and localities didn't get a lot of help during that period, a period in which their revenues by one estimate declined by fully one third. Uh, they, they responded by adopting austerity budgets, which lasted for a number of years. They responded by firing state and local employees, uh, in droves. Uh, it took them years to begin to rebuild, uh, but they learned a lesson from what they went through, and they worked very hard to create, a, to rebuild and strengthen their rainy day funds. I just checked some statistics this morning. By the end of 2019, the states had rebuilt rainy day funds to a record level of $75 billion. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, uh, and it took a lot of work, but on a national basis, that's enough to sustain the average state for about a month, uh, which is better than nothing. But when you contrast that $75 billion to the magnitude of the projected revenue losses in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, there's no comparison. So unless there is some assistance from outside, the states are going to be looking at a situation far worse than they faced in 2009 and 2010. I could go through some of the statistics on 
allegedly profligate blue states versus parsimonious red states. Uh, I have looked at all 50 states and suffice it to say that there are lots of blue states in bad shape and lots of blue states in good shape. And similarly for red states, Mitch McConnell's state of Kentucky has a rainy day fund that will sustain his state for four days. I could go on. So this is not or should not be a partisan issue. This is a national problem. Indeed, it's a national emergency. With rates of production, with GDP expected to decline at a rate of 30% in the second quarter, and with 38 million Americans having filed for unemployment insurance in the past five weeks, if this isn't a crisis, I don't know what one is. And I think we ought to treat it as as an emergency. Now, with regard to the second question, it is possible in the long run that states will choose to relax uh, their their anti-budget deficit requirements. I would point out, however, that it won't be easy because in many states, indeed most, those requirements are not simply legislated. They are part of the state constitutions, and state constitutions are very difficult to alter. It's also worth asking whether shifting borrowing requirements from the federal government to the states really makes a lot of sense, given the fact that the federal government can borrow money at much, at much more favorable rates than states and states and localities. But I don't rule out the possibility that in in the longer term, there could be some readjustment of borrowing responsibilities uh, between between the feds and and the states. But I don't see that happening fast, certainly not fast enough to deal with the emergency. Uh, I agree with everything that Bill just said. I think only Vermont uh, allows deficit spending at the state level. Uh, but I would just say that no state, no state is in good shape at this point, and it's about to get a lot worse. I agree. If I can just switch hats for a second and, and put my Volcker Alliance research hat on. Uh, state budget practices are are something that we pay very close attention to, and, and we actually uh, grade the states on their on 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 the quality of their of their budgets. So number one about balanced budget requirements. Yes, uh, every state but Vermont has some sort of a balanced budget requirement. And interestingly, Vermont is uh, Vermont is slavish to the uh, to to the idea of a balanced budget. And uh, uh, even though it doesn't have it in, in law, and merely the just the word deficit uh, is enough to send people in the legislature uh, into a panic. I know because I've I used that word once. But the problem is that uh, the problem is that that those rules can be those rules are very easy to, to bend. We've demonstrated that over the, the past five years, even during a recovery. States use use something called cash budgeting rather than uh, rather than gap uh, generally accepted accounting principles or accrual full accrual budgeting, which New York's. City, New York City does, and New York City is the only large government uh, that does that. 
by virtue of its bailout in 1975. So states can count borrowed money as revenue. States can count uh, fund transfers from, uh, from capital funds, from other funds. Illinois one year had 500 fund transfers internally to balance the budget. So uh, within reason, within reason, the governor can say, I balanced my budget four years, eight years, 12 years in a row, but it, but there's a lot of leakage in a situation like this. There will be, uh, there will be leakage, and really nobody, nobody could plan for a disaster. Bill is right. Uh, rainy day funds are at a record high, but rainy day funds really will only cover a, a, a small amount be, before they're gone. In the last recession, uh, state of Georgia, a AAA rated state, very, very conservative with a lowercase c as, as far as financial policies go, uh, the state of Georgia ran through its rainy day fund in half a year. And that was in a, re in a recession that was much less deep and much less sudden. Georgia has, has since rebuilt its rainy day fund to, uh, uh, to a much higher level under, uh, under the auspices of uh, my friend and, and late colleague Jack Hill, the chairman of the, the, chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, who, who died recently, unfortunately. California has built its rainy day fund and other reserves past $20 billion. But when you have a, when you have a state budget that's over $200 billion, dollars it's not going to last very long and that's the that's the, the critical thing you see the stress coming out right now not in states borrowing although the, the fed may be just discussing enlarging its uh, municipal liquidity facility to to take on longer term debt you see the stress in the the state uh, rainy, uh, the, the state unemployment trust funds the unemployment trust fund system was only moderately well well funded as of the start of the year. There were 20 or 21 states plus the Virgin Islands that were below the federal government's minimum solvency level. Since then, since the pandemic hit, states uh, as healthy as Texas, California, Connecticut, Illinois, many states have, have asked for loans. In the last recession, states borrowed $154 billion from the federal government. Uh, you may need to check me on the, the exact uh, last digit in that. Uh, in addition, they borrowed another 40-odd billion dollars through the bond market and internally. This time around, we're, we will probably see a multiple of that. So it wouldn't be surprising to see uh, a half a trillion or more just in uh, unemployment trust fund borrowing. And that will have to be repaid with employer taxes uh, or out of other state resources. States, states can't handle a four or $500 billion burden to fill up their unemployment trust funds on top of, on top of all the other revenue losses, five, six, $700 billion in state and local losses. This is just absolutely unthinkable. Bill, that's a very good background set of facts. And I would like to ask a, a broad question uh, before we get back to some of the specific questions. And before I do that, I just want to remind our listeners here, uh, those particularly who haven't listened for all of our series, that we have been giving, giving credit to the federal government response, both the Federal Reserve, for their fast stepping in and to set up a liquidity uh, facility at a moment when markets municipal and state borrowing were totally frozen. By the way, there is a good Wall Street Journal article, front page article on that today where Patrick Brett, our 
Penayu, our fellow and speaker last week, uh, is quoted on the extraordinary uh, effect of unfreezing that market, which could have been in itself a major crisis. Of course, that wasn't the only frozen market. So the Fed unprecedentedly quickly stepped in, as did the federal government, uh, to make up some of the losses in, pre in the CARES Act related to expenses and to unemployment. But the point that was made in past uh, these uh, series is that the revenue losses have not been made up for at all. And as Bill Galston is saying, and others have said previously, this will be a drag on the recovery. So my question, my general question is, are we at a consensus moment? Is there, combined with the HEROES Act and the elements of the SMART Act uh, that address state and local, does the SMART Act encompass most of the state and local parts of the HEROES Act? And is this consensus likely to lead to legislation that passes both the houses, both the House and the Senate? May I turn to uh, you, Congressman, first on your prospects for whether we're going to get sure. legislation? No, I appreciate it. It's a great question. And I think we are moving towards a convergence. Some of my Republican friends a few months ago could not have envisioned supporting uh, deficit spending on this order of magnitude. They thought that uh, affordable childcare and having paid sick leave were just uh, unnecessary bells and whistles. Uh, all of a sudden we find out that those are essential. There's been a great deal of movement. Um, and to the point about the unemployment system uh, that Bill was talking about, what better illustrates the fundamental flaws and failures. We have a patchwork system across the country. No state is capable of handling this and would not be able to recover rapidly. And the, their, the administration of these unemployment programs across the country is a disaster. They're unable to process the money that the Congress has approved. I think there is an opportunity to be able to forge a consensus. It might take a little more time than we think. I feel that there's going to be extraordinary pressure uh, going back to Bill's point about the fire chiefs. Uh, I can give you 50 examples that come across my desk uh, about the strains that are taking place and the recognition about how serious they are. I do think that there is an opportunity to move it forward. The legislature, the various pieces of legislation, the CARES Act, the HEROES Act, the SMART Act, they are broadly moving in the same direction. The amount is going to be the magnitude and a few of the details. But I think there is tremendous momentum to be able to meet these needs, and it's going to grow. It's going to be worse in a month or two as the magnitude of the losses becomes clearer, as hopefully we get some control over the COVID-19 pandemic. But if we don't, it's only going to compound it. And we have fundamental parts of our economy and our way of life that are slowly uh, unfolding. What's going to happen with transit, for heaven's sakes? Uh, in terms of the changes that are going to have to be made uh, to get people on uh, those systems uh, to make them safe and effective. What's going to happen with nursing homes? I mean, these have been systematically underfunded at the state level as state legislators uh, cut back on their share of Medicaid. They 
they uh, have not been the most generous partners. It's been the federal government that's kept that afloat, a million three. And that financial model is hopelessly broken because it relies upon very low paid, often illegal immigrants. Uh, and now their costs of business are going to skyrocket and there's going to be more people at risk and it's going to be more challenging. So I think these, as they come into focus, are going to force people in Congress on both sides of the aisle to be more realistic about the depth of the problem. And I think the public is going to insist uh, on a broader and more dramatic response. And it's not just a dozen Republican senators who are in all of a sudden competitive Senate races running for re-election. I think that realization is dawning uh, and it's and I think it's having a great deal of impact. Thank you, Congressman. Bill, can you tell us uh, your views on the likelihood of a consensus on one or both of these pieces of legislation? I am less sanguine than Congressman Blumenauer, Blumenauer about the about the fate of anything like the HEROES Act. I view it as very unlikely that the Republican Senate will accede to all or even most of the categories in the HEROES Act. And I think that uh, in the short to medium term, the focus is going to be on a handful of areas uh, where the where the prospects of agreement are are much brighter. Uh, one of them, as I said in response to a previous question, is suitably defined and distributed aid to states and localities. Another one could well be a point that the congressman mentioned in his opening remarks, namely infrastructure. I have to say, I am unpersuaded that the federal gas tax is going to turn out to be the principal funding mechanism for an ambitious infrastructure program. Uh, there's no consensus in the Congress on that matter. And as the Congressman knows as well as I do, there are many representatives of, of sparsely populated states who will fight tooth and nail uh, to block an expansion of the federal gasoline tax. I think there, the case for borrowing money very long term at near zero interest rates in order in order to create, you know, a genuinely big scale infrastructure effort uh, is very strong. If not now, when? You know, with so many people out of work, with demand for construction materials way down with interest rates at historically low levels and tending below zero as we speak, this is the time to go down that road. Uh, perhaps we should consider issuing not just 30-year bonds, but 50-year bonds in order to lock in these low rates uh, in sufficient quantities to fund such a program. But do I see the Republicans in the Senate going for massive childcare subsidies and things like that? I do not. There is one very interesting area that the Congressman also touched on, namely our unemployment insurance program. I agree with his description of it as a patchwork, which is catastrophically poorly administered 
at the state level in many states, starting with Florida, but not ending there. And I note with interest that among conservative Republicans like Missouri Senator uh, Josh Hawley, uh, there is increasing interest on a European European model direct wage subsidy going to employees that appears to work much more effectively and efficiently. I think the UI system that we now have is one of the products of the New Deal that needs to be rethought completely, and I think it may well be. Uh, thank you, Bill. Just, may I just, just follow up for a moment okay, because ahead, I, I, I agree with uh, much of what Bill's saying, but be clear. No, the HEROES Act is not going to pass in its entirety or or a substantial part of it. But there are elements there as part of this opening bid. If I were running the House, I would send over the part of the HEROES Act that dealt with the state and local support and send that to the Senate and let them chew on that for a while. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it is just a gas tax that funds infrastructure. I have 17 different, 14 different proposals that can deal with our short and long-term infrastructure needs. But to Bill's point, 36 states have raised the gas tax in the last 12 years, including a lot of those rural states like Utah and Wyoming and Iowa. Uh, so this is something that can in fact happen there is a broad bipartisan support that has done it at the state level, and there is a massive coalition that would support it federally. Uh, and if, in fact, uh, we get a little daylight from this administration, this can happen very quickly. This is part of what should be a broader effort at tying these things together. I think this is a time for reform. I think we will be forced to make changes uh, to the catastrophically unwieldy and ineffective unemployment program. I think we're going to look differently, candidly, at, at quality childcare and paid family leave. That's already moved itself, its way onto the uh, radar and has received some support. And the notion of deficit spending, it is, it's kind of like uh, Winston Churchill in terms of what kind of a woman do you think I am? We've already established that, ma'am. We're just established. We're just trying to negotiate your price. Well, I think there's going to be massive deficit spending, and I think it's going to continue in the force of what we're facing. Uh, thank you, Carson. It's clear we should do something going forward, and we will, on infrastructure. I do want to put a point on this question uh, to both you, uh, to Congressman, as well as you, Bill Galston, which is, is the SMART Act the consensus that will pass Congress? Well, I'll be very brief because I've already made my position clear. It was the product of a serious, a sustained negotiation across party lines, the only one I know of to have reached a conclusion. So I think it is certainly you know, the canary in the coal mine. Uh, if there's a different way of getting to consensus, perhaps there's a better way. I'm, I, I'm certainly open to seeing it. But right now, that act is the only game, the only bipartisan game in town. Congressman, do you want to address that or should we move sure. on? I'm, just, I'm happy to say uh, I think uh, it is a step in the right direction. It's got some elements that are good to it. It's not going to be uh, negotiate. This is these major things are not going to be negotiated by 
subgroups who are not in the leadership. This is going to be Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, some key people in the administration when they decide to move forward. That's where this comes from. And it comes from pressure on individual members of Congress and the Senate. Uh, I think it is a, an important contribution to the effort. There are elements there that I think may find their way into it. But this is, I think, uh, going to be required work from the leadership uh, to get to the point where they're willing to move these things forward. It's helpful, but I don't think this is going to be dropped down and be adopted any more than the HEROES Act is anything more than an opening bid. Do you think that there is a grand bargain on the horizon soon? No, I think that what we're going to find is going to be some hand-to-hand combat moving these things forward. Uh, The HEROES Act, as I said, was an opening bid. Uh, Mitch McConnell's opening bid was letting state and local governments and school districts go bankrupt, and that's quickly rejected. And we'll move forward. I think there are individual elements that will gather momentum. I think infrastructure is one before we're done that will gather momentum. I think being able to put heavily invest in state and local government and education is going to gain momentum. And I think it'll be larger rather than smaller. Just to remind everybody, you're listening to Special Briefing brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and uh, Penn IUR after that two-second commercial. I wanted to see in our closing minutes if we can go back to a theme that Bill and Earl were both discussing because we have a bunch of questions all on a common theme. One is on the CARES Act had in it uh, some special special assistance for large mass transit agencies like uh, New Jersey Transit and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority in New York. So what is the outlook for, for further assistance, less on the capital side and more on the operating and maintenance side, because there are a lot of transit agencies uh, in municipalities around the country that are, uh, that are to, to say the least, short on funds. Likewise, we have a question on housing aid, which is what is the what is the likelihood of, of any housing provisions showing up in a final bill that makes it through both houses? And an interesting question that comes from the director of communications at the New York State Senate, uh, Alexander Marion, is how can state and local officials be most effective in pushing for further relief? He especially mentions housing, transit and other service uh, delivery agencies. What can state and local officials do to build their case in the House and the Senate? Well, Bill just uh, had experience with the chiefs of police. I think that they're what's most effective is being able to have people make their case in terms of what they're putting up with now and how much worse it's getting. Uh, I think that there will be more support for mass transit. I think there needs to be more flexibility between operating and capital. Capital needs uh, are going to be dramatically different in this new Uh, era that we're going to be in for at least the next decade and giving uh, the transit agencies more flexibility and allowing them to focus on more operations, I think, makes sense. And we're going to see housing emerge as a much more uh, concentrated ever uh, of attention. It was building before the pandemic because of the housing crisis that's taking place in a number of communities across the country. If we don't stabilize what's going on with housing, we could see cascading effects from people being unable to pay rent or mortgages. 
And then what happens in terms of real estate for smaller facilities, uh, shops uh, in on the neighborhood level, there are hedge funds that are now looking at swooping in to buy up distressed properties. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure for the federal government on a number of uh, areas to uh, inject resources to help stabilize it, to work its way out, rather than having these cascading effects that could be devastating. I think that housing has been a lurking issue in the past couple of months, but I don't think we're going to get through the summer before it emerges as a major issue. And I say that because there's mounting pressure in both the mortgage markets and the commercial uh, real estate markets. There are demands for uh, forbearance, an increasing number of individuals and households will be unable to make mortgage payments, which will have a cascading effect through the entire ecology of, of mortgage finance. And commercial real estate, I think, is in for a really rough ride, you know, as a lot of small businesses go out of business and won't, won't be replaced quickly uh, by, by new renters. A lot of very large corporations are now putting pressure on mall owners and other and and other providers of commercial real estate to renegotiate renegotiate rentals. And this COVID-19 induced crisis did not begin with a financial crisis, but it could end up as one and in very important sectors of the U.S. economy, starting with housing. So. I think we ought to spend the rest of the summer thinking through responses on both the home mortgage market and on the commercial real in commercial real estate market before the situation gets out of hand, which it easily could. Yes, and on that, uh, look for Penal You Are Brief that's coming out on that. And of course, let's note that the commercial and residential real estate markets are the basis for the property tax, which brings us back to state and local. In our closing moments, I have two questions back to the specifics of the legislation. Bob Inman of the Wharton School asks, with the House proposed $350 billion in their HEROES Act earmarked for local governments, how will the money be allocated? Will it go to the states and state legislatures and governors aside? Or has the House proposed a specific formula? Strictly per capita, bluntly, will Scarsdale, New York, and Beverly Hills, California get the same revenues per person as Camden, New Jersey, or Scranton, PA. And a related question from Alec Kirschberg of New School. Is there any hope that state, that aid to state and local governments will be allocated using formulas and guidelines that avoid what Paul Peterson called the price of federalism? Namely that less dense rural states will ultimately get more than their fair share. And the two questions go in somewhat different directions, but uh, perhaps we can start with you, Bill, on your thoughts as uh, what what's in the legis proposed legislation on allocation. I've already made it clear what's in the SMART Act, and I think it would be smart of me to leave the HEROES Act allocation formula to Congressman Blumenauer, who knows a lot more about it than I do. So why don't we turn that over to him? <laughs> well, thanks. The HEROES Act has $375 billion to local government. 
250 billion would be awarded within 30 days of the enactment, should it happen to all municipalities and counties. Half of that would be using a modified uh, community development block grant formula. Some of it would go to entitlement municipalities, uh, generally defined as those uh, a population of at least 50,000. Uh, 37.5 billion to non-entitlement municipalities, the smaller. There were efforts to have 125 billion to counties based on population. There's an effort in the House legislation to make sure that more of it flows through to the state uh, or to the, the local entities that need it, not getting it short-stopped at the state level, where we've seen a number of states have different priorities than uh, helping their local municipalities, the same way that we've had problems having them shortstop healthcare money and backfill with federal funds. So there was an effort to lay that out in a way that would avoid some of the problems that we saw in the first round of the CARES Act. We have two minutes left and final minutes. A question from Bedford Leiden, VP of Lewis Sales. What are your thoughts on moral hazard? I'll be very brisk here. Whatever you want to say about prior state practices, COVID-19 is the equivalent of a hurricane that hit all 50 states at the same time. And the last time I checked, when we're talking about emergency assistance, we're not talking about moral hazard. There's an argument about the design of programs looking forward. The federal flood insurance program is a perfect example of one designed to replicate in the future disasters that have occurred in the past. We shouldn't be in the business of doing that. But right now, the hazard is not moral. It's economic and it's human and it has to be dealt with. I agree wholeheartedly with Bill as someone who spent two decades trying to reform the flood insurance program. But I would note that uh, Hurricane Sandy uh, revealed the fact that some of my Republican colleagues thought that uh, they were not embracing a comprehensive approach that we're all in this together. And it was uh, kind of interesting watching that little drama play out until there was a tornado in Oklahoma. I hope that we're able to understand that we're all in it together, that this is something that is going to benefit everyone if we're able to uh, strengthen us all. And that helps us move past uh, some of the unproductive approaches we've had in the past where there have been people who feel like we're not in it together. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.